Good morning. If you would go ahead and take your seats as we begin our program on this beautiful, brisk morning in January. I am Dr. LaKendra Hardware. I am the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, or DEI, and it also is my joy and honor and privilege to chair the MLK Committee. Welcome to King Celebration 2020 again on this Monday. Our theme this year is unapologetically just rooted in the way of Jesus. And I wanted to say just a word about this theme and how it came to be and why it is important for us to have that as our focus as we begin this new year together. Sometimes we see things and it moves us. Sometimes we see things and it should move us. Always there is a call to respond. And that's what we wanna talk about today. As a Mennonite institution, faith is important. It's a part of our fabric. It is a part of our very essence. And so with our theme this year being unapologetically just, we want to remind us that we are rooted in the way of Jesus. We are rooted in God for all of humanity. And because of that, there's some work that we have to do in this new year. And so you probably have seen some individuals standing at the doors wearing these shirts that say this theme. Uh, those are members of uh, the Black Student Union and also the Regarding Justice Network, some of our student leaders that are helping usher and helping plan some things. And so we wanted to acknowledge them and say thank you uh, to them, to members of our MLK committee that are sitting here and also there, um, to Dr. Regina, Dr. Kendra, and to Rebecca, thank you so much for your work to get us to this point. At this time, we will have Kara Wilson come up and she will share our land acknowledgement statement and we will continue with the program. Thank you. Hello. Um, we want to acknowledge that we gather as Goshen College on the traditional land of the Potawatomi and Miami peoples past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the people who have stewarded it throughout the generations. This calls us to commit to continuing to learn how to be better stewards of the land we inhabit as well. Thank you. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory Good morning. Um, my name is Claire. My name is Amethyst. And we're both uh, Regarding Justice Network peer educators. Um, we work with the Department or the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion uh, to spread knowledge, awareness um, among our student body and among the community about social justice issues. 
And so today, we will be continuing the celebration with two breakout sessions. They will be both on the same agenda, but throughout these breakout sessions, they will consist of activities that will help broaden our understanding of people within our society. And so the first breakout session, A and B, sorry, they start at one o'clock and they go to 2.15. And they are titled, What Do You Mean? And so in this space, it is capped at 60 people per session. So make sure you do get there on time so you can participate in these activities. We'll have some light refreshments in between um, from 2.15 to 2.30. And then our next breakout session will be breakout session C um, at 2.30 from 2.30 to 3.45. Um, this will be a culmination of what we've been talking about over the course of our celebration today. Um, we're calling it Putting It All Together, and um, we're, we're drawing all of the themes that we're talking about into one session together. Um, the, we will have our session open until all the tables are filled, and we're guessing that will be around 150 people. And now we're going to welcome Zachariah Begley with the reading and introduction. Thank you. How's everyone doing this morning? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm Zachariah, and I am one of three BSU leaders uh, serving this year. What does it mean to be unapologetically just? Does it mean that we feed the person who tells you they haven't eaten in two days? Does it mean that we help the person down the hall that you only know by face, carry in their groceries? Does it mean that you stay up late with a friend even though you need to get up early because they just really need it bad right now? Does it mean we stand up for your sibling who is being bullied at school? Of course it does, but it means so much more. It means we stand up for the voiceless. It means we treat the earth with the gratitude and care it deserves. It means we destroy systems and structures that are hurting. It means we strive for peace. It means we do the right thing when even the right thing is hard as hell. It means we demand the best from the powerful. It means we lift up the powerless. It doesn't mean we stand down. It doesn't mean we look away. It doesn't mean we do nothing when the world demands we do something. Nothing isn't an option. Nothing is never an option. We just have to be just unapologetically. It means we have to have the tough conversations. It means we need to lend a hand. It means we don't stop. It means we don't give up. It means we don't delay. Martin Luther King Jr. said, now is the time to make justice a reality for all. That doesn't mean tomorrow, a week from now, a month, a year, five years, 10 years. That means now. I would argue it means yesterday, though we can't control yesterday, but you can control today. So I ask you, I plead you, I beg you, I implore you to go out and fight for justice because injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. All right, now I would like to 
invite Dr. <laughs> Regina Shans Stolzfus uh, to the stage. She currently teaches at Goshen College in the Peace, Justice, and Conflict Studies, as well as the Bible, Religion, and Philosophy Departments. Her courses include race, class, class and ethic relations, personal violence and healing, spiritual path of the peacemaker, and transforming conflict and violence. Regina is co-founder of the Roots of Justice anti-oppression program, formerly Damascus Road, and continues as a core trainer with Roots in Justice. She has worked in peace education with Ohio Conference of the Mennonite Church, Mennonite Central Committee, and Mennonite Mission Network. She holds a Master's of Arts degree in Biblical Studies from Ashland Theological Seminary and a PhD in Theology and Ethics from Chicago Theological Seminary. Regina is the recipient of the State of Indiana's 2016 Spirit of Justice Award, the highest award conferred by Indiana's Civil Rights Commission. Dr. Regina Stansteltz. Good morning. We love a good hero story, right? The hero archetype as it appears in narratives that we love the best in movies, in books, the games we play, we aspire to being that hero. We want to hear those stories. They encourage us. They model for us uh, that impossible things can be done. And there's two broad categories of these hero stories. There is the solitary figure that is born into unusual circumstances. They might experience a traumatic event that leads them on a quest, right? The thing that must be done. Or they might have a special weapon that only they can wield. They hold the power that no one else has. Or some other supernatural power of some kind. That's one. There's also the everyday hero, ordinary person who is met with extraordinary circumstances over which they masterfully prevail. And then we find out, oh, they're not so ordinary after all. We love a good story and we love a good hero. And while there are indeed stories of real heroes, real live people who do extraordinary things, we don't do ourselves favors by mythologizing those people and making them otherworldly. According to the archetype, that's what a hero is, someone who does the impossible, something that us ordinary folks, we can't do that, someone who is able to commit feats of magnificence that I can't aspire to. And that's what a hero is, maybe. You are likely familiar with one of the biggest hero stories of our time, the story of the Montgomery bus boycott, the series of events that launched the civil rights career of Dr. King. The success of the boycott is undoubtedly one of the biggest movement success stories of the 20th century, if not the biggest. And so I don't make light of it at all when I talk about it being mythologized. What I mean is that it is truncated so severely that we miss the power of the big story. And this is a story whose power we need then and today. So here's the myth. Rosa Parks was a tired African-American seamstress 
who one day refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama to a white man. And by doing so, she bravely, accidentally, and single-handedly launched the civil rights movement, which eventually prevailed. How very impossible for someone like me to emulate. I wouldn't know what to do. I know I am not that brave. So even if you know the more accurate version of the story, and I know that there are people here, maybe all of you, know the more accurate version, the elongated version, it's still useful to think about how many of the 65 years since that fateful day we have hung on to that simplistic and yet dramatic narrative. So a little bit more of the real deal. Rosa McCauley Parks was a well-read, conscious, activist person who came from an activist, conscious family. Her own definition of herself as she reflected over her life, over her childhood and her teenage years and her young adult years, was that she was a rebellious person. And the circumstances around her that she was born into helped shape this sense of her self-named rebelliousness. She was born in 1913, the grandchild of enslaved people. The women in her family, in particular, her mother and her grandmother, raised her to not think of herself as inferior to any person. And this is in a context where the society around her was telling her, you are, you come from an inferior people, you are an inferior person. And her family spoke into her that this is not true. And yet, as a child, she witnessed the escalation of Klan violence after World War I. She would have been six years old during what was called the Red Summer of 1919, when black soldiers returned from the war, expecting that they had now earned the right to be treated as equal Americans. In her town, churches were burned, black people were whipped and killed, some found dead in the streets. This is the reality of a child in that time. She was an early and avid reader and was raised on the notion that a primary goal of education was learning and claiming the history of black resistance. Even in 1919, this was something that was poured into her and other people. Jean Theo Harris, the author of a wonderful biography on Parks, uh, the name of which is The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, I recommend it highly, uh, explained how Rosa's consciousness developed not only from events happening in the world, but how her family talked about it. At home, the Macaulay's, uh, she writes, at home, the Macaulay's discussed the history of slavery, the situation of blacks in Alabama, and how to survive not getting into trouble by confrontation with white people who were not friendly to us. Rosa's family sought to teach her a controlled anger, a survival strategy that balanced compliance and militancy. One of the lessons her mother imparted that lodged in Rosa's head 
was how the slaves had to fool white people into thinking that they were happy. The white people would get angry if the slaves acted unhappy. They would also treat the slaves better if they thought the slaves liked white people. As she became aware of the terms of white supremacy, the fact that acting happy produced better treatment stuck in her throat. She longed for ways to contest this treatment. She also well understood the punishment for resistance." End quote. Parks would constantly have to battle these two forces. Militancy could get a person killed, and yet resistance, however dangerous, pushed back on the oppression and at times made it diminish. And while there are more stories about her childhood and teen years that help us know this woman, that help us know what shaped her into the person that was able to do what she did on that day, I will fast forward ahead to her adult years and commend to you your homework to read the biography of Rosa Parks. Unsurprisingly, with this background and with this context, she became an organizer and an investigator for the Montgomery NAACP. In the 1940s, Parks used her passion for justice to investigate incidents of sexual assault against black women, something that law enforcement systematically ignored. In the summer of 1955, when she was 42 years old, Parks spent two weeks at the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee. It was a place for black and white activists to work together, to train, to plan. It was a place to gain community and colleagues, to join forces in the fight against justice because all along she knew this is not work that one does alone. So she's there at the Highlander Center for two weeks. And at this point, she had been an organizer for years. She had been steeped in the work for years and yet was kind of down because Montgomery seemed like it was going to be a hard nut to crack. Those two weeks at the center in the summer of 1955, she worked at desegregating the schools, but really didn't have much hope for change in Montgomery. And then there was the bus. Before we get into the details of that fateful day, I want to make sure that we really are clear on how segregation of public transportation actually functioned. So we know pretty much that the first half of the bus is reserved for white riders and the back of the bus reserved for African Americans. However, if all of the seats in the front of the bus in the white section were full, it was incumbent upon the black riders to give up their seats in their portion of the bus for white riders. Furthermore, the segregated buses served as a daily reminder for its riders, the citizens of Montgomery, of the racial hierarchy that was in operation. Buses then, as they do now, had two doors, one in the front near the driver and one in the rear. Some of the drivers would require that their black passengers enter the front of the bus, pay their fare, exit the front of the bus, walk back to the back of the bus, and then walk in the proper door for them. The message was clear as bus riders, black and white, day after day, embodied their status by literally ritualizing what was for many a twice daily bus ride. Most people don't have cars. People who do have cars 
don't have multiple cars, which is more the norm for many of us today. And so you have thousands of people riding the bus day after day after day and bearing in their bodies this, this ritual that says, we know what the hierarchy is and we will participate with this system for our own safety. And so we finally come to December 1st, 1955. Parks refused to give up her seat for a white rider. She was the third African-American woman within a year to do so. Like the other women before her, she was arrested and fined. The next day, the Women's Political Council, which had been strategizing for over a year about the buses, called for a one-day boycott. As people began to mobilize, the 26-year-old pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Martin King, is elected as the president of the newly formed Montgomery Improvement Association. Perhaps you knew this before, but it strikes me every single time I read it. 26 years old is elected the president of this movement. Fast forwarding again, because there's a lot to say about what's going on, the strategy involved, the meetings that were involved, the organization of so many people coming together. They didn't have internet, they couldn't text each other. They had to meet in real time, in real places. They had to be fed, they had to do it after work. You can't just take off work to mobilize a, a resistance movement, right? And so think about all of the organization that had to happen for the boycott to last, not the one day that was planned, but 380 days. 380 days, many of the citizens of Montgomery, Alabama, who depended on public transportation to get to jobs they could not afford to lose, did not ride the bus. And there's a lot more to say, as I was saying, and, I, and, and even as I'm saying, I'm gonna tell the big story because we lose so much when we truncate it to three sentences. Know that there's so much more to say, even with that. The boycott was a win. The federal district court eventually declared segregation unconstitutional, and the Supreme Court upheld the decision. One of the ironies of this situation is by the time of the mass meetings to organize the protest after Park's arrest, her voice kind of takes a back seat in the, the narrative that gets played out. And some of the work that we have today by scholars that unfolds that, that story for us is why we know we can know more about her and, and push away that mythology of this meek, timid woman who just one day decided not gonna do it today. I mean, it's kind of the story, but it's not the real story. Many of the participants of the civil rights movement have acknowledged that much of the visible leadership, including those whose voices were heard at gatherings and those who spoke for the movement were often the men. But the women were there and young people were there. Ordinary people, scores of ordinary people made this campaign a success. And I strongly, firmly believe that it could not have been a success were it not for the pooling of all of that collective energy, 
over a long period of time. You can't get tired when you're trying to do something this big. And you won't get tired or as tired if you got lots and lots of people doing it with you, right? Because everybody's not going hard every day. They were able to spell one another. And this is the genius of movements. They are made of people. There is no lone superstar that single-handedly pulled this campaign off. It is so important for us to remember this as we face the work for our own time. What I love about this long expanded story is that it epitomizes this year's theme, unapologetically just, and rooted for many people in that movement in the way of Jesus. Meeting in churches, singing church songs, listening to preachers, pe people who didn't think of themselves as preachers suddenly like, oh, did I just preach a word there? Um, this is the genius of people coming together. We do so much more. We are capable of so much more when we don't try to lone uh, wolf it. James Cone, the architect of black liberation theology, in a lecture at Princeton Theological Seminary titled The Relationship of the Christian Faith to Political Praxis, noted, and I quote, for liberation theologians, faith and praxis, and praxis is doing, belong together because faith can only be expressed in a political commitment to the human humanization of society. We believe that inherent in faith is the love of God, Cohn says. And the latter can only be manifested in the love of one's neighbor. Therefore, Cohn goes on, as Gustavo Gutierrez writes, to know God is to do justice. To know God is to do justice. It is not enough to say that the love of God is inseparable from the love of one's neighbor. It must be added that the love of God is unavoidably expressed through the love of one's neighbor. And it is for this reason that this year's theme is unapologetically just. Justice is about right relationships. Relationships with each other, relationships with the earth, relationship with the creator. Our current social climate calls for, demands, an active reinterpretation of faith for the present content context. We can learn so much from the past, but we have to reinterpret it for the present. Battles that we thought were long won lay unfinished. Yeah, that, that bus, bus boycott was a win, but injustice we still deal with. Ground we thought we gained rolled back. So what do we do in the meantime? What is the strategy? Who are the people? Where is the network? It's there. Some of you know full well, well it's there, and you're engaged in it, and you're involved in it. And I think that our history tells us we can't get tired, and we can't give up. At the end of the day, justice calls. From where you sit, in the day-to-day -day comings and going, what does it look like? In your discipline, what does it look like? Is it clean water? 
Is it access to food? Is it access to education? Is it a safe home? Is it a safe campus? Dr. King talked about the triple evils of racism, poverty, and militarism. He said that these three entities are interrelated. They keep us, all of us, from realizing what he called the beloved community. King adopted that term, beloved community, first used by theologian Josiah Royce, to mean something that was actually attainable. It's not just this idea that maybe one day we'll get to heaven and we'll realize the beloved community, but he said, no, 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 God's plan is for that community to be right here, right now, and we are the ones to bring it about. Put simply, it is the idea that all people can get along and share the wealth of the earth, but it would take work, it would take sacrifice, it would take skills. It would take, at the very least, the acknowledgement of our common humanity and our need for one another. Sandhya Jai, the director of the Oakland, California Peace Center and author of Pre-Post-Racial America, Spiritual Stories from the Front Lines, I'll say that again because it's an amazing title, Pre-Post-Racial America, Spiritual Stories from the Front Lines, says this, a critical first step in building the beloved community is making sure that no one has to be in perpetual fear for their lives. She goes on, I think we sometimes overlook this step because we take it for granted, and while we continue to address that first step, maybe the next step is making sure everyone has some reason to hope for the future. She says, further, if we don't find a way to listen to one another's stories across difference, recognizing that even within racial and ethnic groups, we have a broad array of experiences that we need to honor, we will keep rebuilding the foundations of the beloved community over and over again, because those of us building it will get so frustrated at being ignored or villainized or homogenized that we'll take a sledgehammer to the unstable foundations and have to start from scratch. Perhaps, friends, the beloved community best begins in small ways, in sanctuaries, in classrooms, on dorm floors and in office suites, in the places we find ourselves living our regular, ordinary, daily lives. Perhaps for us, too, feats of extraordinary courage that break open, that which we thought was, that which we thought was unbreakable begins with small moments, paying attention to the world around us, talking about it with our loved ones, talking about it with those who are not yet our loved ones. Yeah, this means talking to the people who don't think like us, look like us, act like us, and we've been told they're our enemies. Learning more by consciously seeking others with varying vantage points and different life stories. Being connected to and grounded in communities that are unafraid to name injustice over and over and over again. Beginning in small ways, yes, but refusing to stay small. Coordinating 380 days of alternative transportation, after all, is not a small thing. 
That is a huge thing. We don't revisit these stories to rest upon days gone by in the same way that we don't abandon our faith narratives after we've heard them once. We tell these stories, the real, complicated, human versions of them, to celebrate them, yes, but also to equip us for the now. The threats of racism, poverty, and war are still with us, and so much more. We could add issue after issue after issue, right? The work is not done. The work of liberation is not done in isolation. It is not done absent of community. Yes, we're amazing in and of ourselves. We are more amazing when we are connected to one another. It doesn't happen without being informed, and it doesn't happen without the realization of how oppressions are connected to one another. You pull one strand and you find that it's connected to a whole fabric that affects so many people's lives. And at the end of the day, being fiercely unapologetic about claiming justice for ourselves, for each other, and for all in the beloved community. Friends, may it be so. May it ever be so. Amen. Dr. Regina has given us a blessing on this morning, an opportunity to sit with the moments, big and small, but an invitation to refuse to remain small. As we have our musical selection, we offer you some time to think about the words that have been said, not just for a convocation credit, not just for an admissions day activity, not just for a day off or some time out of class or off work or out of the office, but for purposeful change in 2020 for the needs of all of creation. We'd like to invite Ms. Robina Summers to come and do what she does. As she comes, I want to share with you my experience of this song and of her beautiful arrangement. As a black woman from the South, growing up in a black church, in a black community, tied to different black pieces of culture, I've heard this song so many times. Lift every voice and sing. Last year, as I said, about where she was sitting before she got up to go to the piano, preparing to share here on that Sunday morning for worship, I was listening to things and the offertory selection uh, was being played. And I, my head was down and I was doing something. And as she began to play it, my head came up in a way that was so empowering. I won't tell her story for her, but if you ever have the opportunity to speak to her, ask her about why this arrangement is so important to her. Let it bless you as it has blessed me. Ms. Robina, do your thing.
Amen and amen and amen again. All my happy feels. That song moves me. For those of you who don't know that song, it is the National Negro Anthem um, that has been sung in churches and events. Um, it is a part of the hymnal here, and I love that. It is a part of this, this church, and so it is not limited to only black people singing it. In fact, this congregation on Sunday, that Sunday morning sang it uh, a cappella. Telling you, I was messed up that whole day. Just, 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 wow. It was beautiful. But if you ever want to know what the song is, you can look it up online, but even pick up one of the hymnals. I, I believe it is 579. I looked it up on yesterday. So, this has been a wonderful, wonderful continuation of our celebration. Um, this is the time when I give our thank yous and remind you of um, where we are uh, in our day and to invite you to continue sharing. My heart is filled right now, and I'm just very excited. So we do want to just say, take a few moments to welcome you, and well, not welcome you, but to welcome you back for the remaining breakout sessions and evening candlelight vigil. The candlelight vigil, again, will be right here at 6.30 p.m. Uh, Pastor Joanne Gallardo and our uh, student ministry team and other intercultural student leaders have put that together. It is about 45 minutes, and so we will share in a time of prayer and focus and, and, and continuing to anchor into the notion that this isn't an option, right? Uh, doing something isn't really an option, it's a necessity. It's a part of who we are, out of, out of who we're called to be as creatures that God has created. Um, so that's our candlelight visual in here at 6.30. After that, we'll have some nice hot chocolate for you as you go on your way. We want to give you just a little, little blessings here and there. Uh, for our breakout sessions, just a reminder of our schedule, uh, 1 o'clock to 2.15, so an hour and 15 minutes, activity-based. REJN has shared that with you, but REJN and BSU will be leading that, and it is a really great activity, so come prepared to uh, engage in, in dialogue. <clears throat> active dialogue, we'll call it that. Again, each session is limited to 60, and so for between the two, 120. For the two breakout sessions we had last year, we had about 130, and so don't think that we've tried to like shut people out. We did it based off of our availability to facilitate as well as what was the uh, attendance from last year. So please come and um, know that we will be looking forward to sharing that with you. And then again, Breakout session C, myself, along with Dr. Kendra Yoder, will be sharing in that, and it is putting it all together. And so I don't know, I jotted some notes down, um, and I'm picking up pieces, and Dr. Kendra was also, because we want to incorporate that into some of our highlights. I think I've got our schedule down, right? Um, vigil. And so we want to say a special thank you to everyone who has helped make our vision for King Celebration 2020 a reality. Um, a special thank you, and I would ask that you would stand uh, to our committee members. We, we've been, someone asked me uh, yesterday, well, what's the process for this and how do you come up with this? We meet a lot, but very, very good meetings. Um, our meetings were not only just about the planning, but also thinking about our community thinking about where we are as Goshen College and what is our call. And so we've been meeting um, since August weekly and have come to create this, this plan for today. Um, as we prepare to finalize 
Just so you know, if you want to be involved, keep it on your radar, we will have a couple more meetings this semester or this, this month. We'll meet to do some evaluation and then we kind of do some brainstorming for next year. And over the summer, the theme, et cetera, begins to take some shape and form so that when we come back in August, we can begin with full committee meetings. If you are interested in becoming a part of MLK, I say this to our faculty and our staff, and I also say this to our students. We have student representation on our committee as well. Please do reach out and let me know. Um, if you were there last night in Souter Music, in Souter Concert Hall, you should have gotten a blessing uh, that we shared, Justice Acts, the very first Justice Acts, or as they say, Justice Acts 2020, because we want to see it done again, was um, offered as a performance. I hope you got a chance to hear it, see it. If not, I do believe it was live streamed and probably is, is available. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm looking around, if it's available on our website. Um, our students came together and did all of the planning of that. They picked their pieces. Some of those pieces were written. Um, they poured out in vision for you what was in their hearts and what was in their hopes for our campus. And so we are grateful to uh, the leaders that organized that. And so to Becca Choi, to Elijah Laura, to Kara Wilson, and to Kelsey Winters, who graduated but was a part of this act, we say thank you for your work. So let us celebrate them. Kara. Kara and Elijah, if you're here, if you will stand up also. Kara, did you stand? She was like, they know who I am. I read the land acknowledgement. All right. <clears throat> thank you so much to all of the performers that shared in that. Um, again, thank you to our committee, Dr. Kendra, Dr. Regina, and Rebecca. Thank you to our partners. We have partners. We don't do this on our own. Uh, to our partners in the CMC, the College Mennonite, excuse me, College Mennonite Church, amen. I try to mess it up, but that's why I stick with acronym CMC. Thank you so much um, for helping us bring this event together. We thank you for sharing of space, of resources, of our speaker. Um, to the events office staff for the tremendous amount of work that goes into this. Thank you, thank you so much for being our coordinating uh, source and guidance. To ITS Media, we definitely could not do this without you. So thank you for all of your patience with getting everything that you need for us. Uh, to the one who created and crafted the beautiful uh, video that you saw, our own David uh, Kendall. Thank you so much for your gifts and your talents. So let us thank him, David Kendall. And to our partners in nourishment, to AVI, we also celebrate and thank you all. Um, I hope I'm not missing anyone. To our special guests that have joined us on today, whether you are here for an admissions day or uh, part of our community, we thank you so, so much, of course, to our president. We continue to say thank you for allowing us to, to do the things that celebrate our community in beautiful ways. I think I got them all, right? Oh, amen. <laughs> to our interpreters, thank you so much. Amen. 
All right, everyone, this has been a wonderful time um, to stand and to be with you all. Please come back for our evening event or afternoon events in our evening. You are dismissed until one o'clock. That was fun. I'm so sorry. Oh.